It's movie time, and we are back again uh, for another week of movie time, and hopefully you had a, a great week there and got a chance to listen to our other interviews as well. And of course, with me this uh, lovely uh, day is my co-host, Kente. Hello, Kente. Hey, uh, how's everything? Um, it's a beautiful morning here in Los Angeles, California, and I'm very, very happy to be here with you. Um, of course, we always encourage a participation and the way that you can participate if you're listening uh, live is you can call in. The number is 323-522-4601. Once again, that number is 323-522-4601. And also, uh, if you want to participate uh, coming to our website, you can do so by going to IndieRadio.org. That's IndyRadio.org. Come into our chat room and, and holler at us. Absolutely. And with us today, we have a most incredible uh, guest all the way out from the UK, which uh, unfortunately we're probably cutting into his supper time, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Hi. Hi Michael Orrett. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for coming uh, on board with us on the show. It's like, uh, so it's been uh, good London, uh, typical London weather? Yeah, no, it's um, uh, summer that's. Occasional sunlight and mostly clouds, but but it's not too bad. So that uh, that sounds actually quite uh, lovely in its own way too. Uh, yeah, it's it's okay if you don't want to go to the beach. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm a redhead with freckles. Beach is okay. really bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that but, works uh, for you. Yeah, it's like it's it, to me. It's like yes, I love the sun, but then every single freckle uh, shines yeah. through. <laughs> So, uh, it's like, can you tell me a little bit uh, more about you and your background? Um, okay, I was born in Zimbabwe, um, in the kind of southern Africa, and um, I did law in the University of Cape Town, went back to practice in Harare in Zimbabwe, and the film industry in Zimbabwe was just kind of booming, because it was towards the end of apartheid, so no films were being shot in South Africa. Everybody wanted to shoot in Africa was shooting in Zimbabwe at the time. So I left legal practice to set up a production company, initially doing commercials, documentaries, and I had a design company. And then I set up the first private radio station in Zimbabwe, which uh, was, well, we had to overturn a broadcasting act in, in Zimbabwe to do that. And we were then shut down by the state, and I had to go into hiding, and I uh, left the country, went to Cape Town, and and um, then got a job running the film festival in Cape Town from 2001 to 2007, mm-hmm. and that kind of gave me the the honor and the privilege to travel the world, watch amazing films, meet interesting filmmakers, and bring to Cape Town and to, to South Africa um, a lot of sales agents, financiers, producers. Um, because we also held a kind of trade fair for the African film and TV industry. So I then got to know all the festivals and basically the the industry landscape and came across my business partner who uh, runs or owns the second biggest insurance group in South Africa and many other uh, health and entertainment and um, hotel businesses, but has a big soft spot for arts philanthropy and for uh, 
films in particular. And he'd done a couple of films which I advised him on. And so when I moved to London, he said, let's set up a business together, which we did in 2008. Initially a sales company um, with aspirations to finance and produce. But the sales company, because of uh, 2008 was the worst time possible to try and launch a sales company, mm-hmm. failed. Uh, but we managed to continue on financing predominantly in South Africa because of a particular tax legislation which allowed them to invest and protect a lot of their investment. Um, mm-hmm. And we did a, probably about 12 films and a documentary that I did on Robin Mugabe and, and Mugabe's life, the president of Zimbabwe. Um, and then that kind of led us to the point where we began relationships with directors, which enabled us now to, to well, we're looking at making our first film in the UK next year um, with an American producer, Robert Stein, who did uh, The Call with Halle Berry uh, a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and now I'm also developing a film um, about the Chinese arrival in Mogadishu in 1417, the first kind of people to come to Africa prior to the Europeans in this huge armada, uh, bigger than any ships of Christopher Columbus, etc. So we, we're now dealing with films that we can, we, we're looking at shooting globally and developing films. I have a company in Ireland, a company in Iceland. Um, so we, we now are producing films for the UK, for Ireland, and as I say, for China. Oh, very, very cool. It's like, yeah, China is going to be very huge this year also at the AFM as well as South Africa's presence with the uh, with the roundtable for co-productions this year. Yeah, well, I, mean, so I mean, I think the thing is, it's for different reasons. I mean, China doesn't really offer any money mm-hmm. um, to people who co-produce, but what it offers them is the ability to um, access the market because if you have an ch- official Chinese co-production you don't have to submit to the quota system and the quota system only allows in a certain number of international films into the China market every year and most of those uh, those places are taken up by studio films so by co-producing with China you, you then get an automatic um, release uh, in China if it's good enough um, with South Africa people co-produce because there is slightly more money um, for co-productions and to mm-hmm. access the locations, etc. And they, and they definitely have a very uh, unique system, uh, both UK, South Africa, as well as China in terms of uh, that. It's like, with especially South Africa and the UK, vastly different from what we understand in the North American system. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that the Filmmaking is separated into these zones. I mean, I think that the American and Chinese systems are very similar. They're audience-driven and market-driven, and uh, you predominantly raise finance against pre-sales and sales projections, and you kind of try and make the most commercial and marketable film possible. Whereas the European system, which evolved out of a, an attempt by France and then by all the other countries, to preserve cultural space meant that they began to subsidize European filmmaking, both producing and distributing, um, so that 
you know, you would still have German films and French films and Spanish films. So those languages and the filmmaking in those languages would be preserved. But it means that it developed a, a filmmaking culture which was not necessarily driven by the market and wasn't looking to satisfy the market necessarily. And although that's beginning to change a bit now because the mm -hmm. funders are beginning, beginning to realize that they need more market orientation, still most funders are trying to help those films which don't have a commercial life, but they still want them to be made. So it's much more of an auteur-driven, um, subsidy-driven, grant-funding-driven model, but also at much lower budget because there's only so much money that subsidies and grants can give you. Absolutely, and those films tend to have a lot of legs internationally as well because they are a little bit more spe uh, specified as well as also uh, globally diverse as well. And well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think um, the thing is the global market, the safest product is, is English language product because um, if you're talking about most... Um, European countries, China, most of them will buy good English language product. And it, then you have a chance, if it's English language, of it working in the US, the UK, and Australia, New Zealand, which are big markets. Whereas if you have a film in German or French, you know, any of those other languages, Korea, etc., they can be amazing films. And the South Koreans make amazing films, and so do the Germans and the Italians. But they are, they're limited in terms of audience because apart from the countries which dub films which are Germany and Italy um, and apart from the French who like art house films and are used to watching subtitles in all of the English speaking territories people don't like reading subtitles and therefore no matter how good the film is they don't do very well if they're in subtitles um, so so I don't know I think European films are generally subsidized to be made primarily so that national audiences and national taxpayers can get to see films in their own language. But their marketability globally is very limited. Well, due, uh, due to the fact that it's like they have to translate the content into their languages for palatability. Yeah. So it's the same with China. You know, China, Chinese filmmakers and investors and producers are not actually necessarily looking to sell their films globally because they make all their money in China. Um, so their films will be in Chinese, but but English language films still work in China because if they're good because they don't mind watching in English. Um, but they're not that comfortable in you know with other other languages. Hopefully, over time, this will uh, change also through the years. And I noticed though also that you have a SAFTA, uh, two SAFTA awards of uh, 2014 and 2012. Can you tell me a little bit more about the SAFTA process? Yeah, I mean, these are just the Film and Television Awards for South Africa, which are the same as the British BAFTA Awards and the national awards of every country. And... Um, it's just a peer-reviewed process like the Oscars where there are a bunch of people who vote um, amongst your peers. And in 2012, we had, uh, in fact, it was 2011, 11 or 12, 
we had Black Butterflies, which was a, a story about a famous poet from South Africa called Ingrid Jonker. Mm-hmm. And um, the film was in Tribeca and won Best Actress at Carice Van Houten and Rutger Hauer, Liam Cunningham. Very beautifully shot. Um, so that won in that year the Best South African Film. And then most recently we won for a small film called Of Good Report, which was the retelling of Lolita in a poor secondary school in a kind of poor rural background in South Africa. But it was retelling and a very dark retelling, um, and it was kind of a serial killer's a serial killer's origin story. Um, mm-hmm. It was shot in black and white from a filmmaker who we are now developing other films, and we really think he's kind of Africa's Tarantino, I suppose. Um, and it had a lot of controversy because when we we got accepted to open the National Film Festival, and on the opening night with everyone assembled it was banned by the censors mm-hmm. and so it wasn't able to be shown on the open night and we then took that decision on review during the festival and by the last day of the festival it was unbanned and then we released it and went on to play in Toronto and it was a competition in London um, and ultimately won the best film award and actually the, the censors who had banned the film actually had to give the director a prize for best uh, writing, mm-hmm. which, wow. they, you know, which they handed over. So, was there an initial objection because of the subject, or because of the actual, con- uh, like uh, dealing with the way of shot content, or because of the rating system? Why was the actual film itself under review initially? Well, essentially, we we have one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, which gives very large amount of freedom of expression to us um, but since 1994 well, since, in fact since the last five years the South African government has begun to erode some of the agencies that look after the preservation of the constitution so one of those agencies is the censor board and they the government I think didn't like the way in which the school system was being portrayed and so I think basically instructed them to find issue. So the issue that they found was that um, because when the teacher arrives at, in, the, in the town or the village where he's teaching, the first night he goes out to the local bar and he picks up a girl and goes home with her. And the next yeah. scene you see her in, in his class. And it's not clear from the film whether she's over 16. Mm. Now, in... The film, the actress was 22, and she had a child already, but she was playing somebody who could have been under 16. They therefore said it was child porn. Um, ah. Yeah. And obviously that's not tenable because it wasn't child porn because she was 22. Um, and it's, you know, just a classic retelling of a story which has a lot more in it than, than small amounts of sex. And, um, but I think it was generally they didn't want people to see it because of, of how it portrayed the school system and the teachers. But ultimately, they, you know, it went to, it became a national talking point on radio and television and newspapers. And many, many, many more people got to hear about it and watched it than if they just left it alone. 
Oh, yeah, and it sounds like an, an extremely exciting film, also because it is a retelling in a unique kind of manner. It's like, are you finding that we are starting to go towards that? Like, for example, when you're working, do you have, like, preferences of working with certain kind of filmmakers, genres, or budgets? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think actually only films that are that are made for very small amounts of money or very large amounts of money are working now because to get a film distributed you have to have stars and so they necessarily come with a lot of cash and being paid to them unless the director or the writer or the material are such that they feel like it's an, you know, an award-winning you know, potential. Um, so the things that I'm writing at the moment tend to be higher budget just because I want them to have a chance of getting a bigger star and mm -hmm. the other thing is I've found that the effort and the stress and the years of your life that come from making a film are the same and sometimes worse when you make a lower budget film than when you make a higher budget film hmm. but on the higher budget film you make more money you know, in fees for producing the film so, uh, mm -hmm. because I mean, for instance, right now at the moment, I have a thirty-five million dollar film, um, which is going to be quite easy for me to do because there's like very a lot of good, competent people that are going to be employed, top of their game, um, and everything will go smoothly, and there'll always be money to to solve things, and there's enough money to pay a very big A-list star, and so. And, and my fee on it is, is quite good. And at the same time, I'm doing a 2.2 million euro film where it's like 10 different sources of finance, very complicated structures, a lot of uh, concentration and effort. Because it's so low budget and we've had to do so many things, we've had to defer fees, so I'm going to earn a lot less and take much bigger risks. And the crew that we'll hire will be the third team rather than the first team and that'll contribute to the risk in the film and so yeah I mean if given the choice the higher the budget the better but um, obviously it depends on the director and if you're coming through if you're developing a director like we have a number of directors that we're developing who are on their first or second or third feature films then mm -hmm. you, you know you have to go with that and so Jamil, who did a good report, his next film is The White Devil, which is a supernatural thriller we, we're shooting in the UK. And for that, we're only kind of going at a $5 million budget. And we should actually be going lower, but you know, we'll do it at that kind of budget because, because that's the kind of budget that, that sales agents will, you know, where, which he will be good for in terms of money. So it's a matter of that it's almost a combination of because he is a more up-and-coming director, you're looking at a more seasoned actor that would be joining the crew, uh, would be joining yeah. the cast. Yeah, so we, we try to find, you know, kind of A-list or, or off A-list somewhere, but somebody that can carry five million. And there's, there's a housemaster. It's about a, an American teen who's got a, a drug problem. His dad sends him to boarding school and... Harrow, which is one of the most kind of prestigious private schools in, in the UK, and he kind of enters a milieu of bullying, 
um, and there's a housemaster putting on a, a Byron, a Byron, Lord Byron play, and mm-hmm. there's a ghost essentially in that school that was Lord Byron's lover's ghost who had been bullied and, and committed suicide in the 1800s. And he comes back because he thinks this boy is Lord Byron coming back. Um, so the housemaster, we're going to try and get, you know, as I say, a well-known actor. But then the teen boy and there's a love interest teen girl, we would try and look for kind of Nick Jonas, somebody coming through either and UK or... Cover. Yes, yeah. But to have some audience following. Yeah, it's yeah, which makes complete sense because it's like it is nice to always have a combination of up and coming talent as well as also star driven talent. The star. Uh, so, w- in terms of that, it's like then that combination. Then, what is considered to be bankable in this day and age? Because if you try and get a lot of up and coming talent, it's harder to find the distribution that comes along with it. If you get a full star driven talent, then you have to drive up the budget to a point where it's sometimes unmanageable towards a new up, a newer and up and coming talent so what then what is the balance of bankable hmm. well I mean I think it's it depends which element you're looking for obviously the studios if they've got a franchise they can go with less known actors and make them into kind of bigger stars um, for us as soon as you're kind of going over Literally, if you're going over kind of $2 million, well, I mean, if you're going over 10, you, you've got to have somebody that's going to carry 10. So that's approaching kind of A-list actors. But anywhere from 2 to 10, you still got to have kind of relatively well-known actors. Um, so when we did Young Ones, which was Jake Paltrow wrote, wrote and directed, and we were set in Utah in the future, and it was kind of early George Lucas style of film, kind of original filmmaking. Um, that one we had Michael Shannon, Al Fanning, Nicholas Holt, and Cody Smith-McPhee. Mm. They're not massive talent, but um, Cody was coming through. He did uh, Return of Planet of the Apes afterwards, and then he did Slow West with uh, Fassbender after that. Um, Nicholas Holt is obviously been an X-Men, and he's kind of moving up the ranks, but he's been around for quite a long time, but not necessarily an A-list star. And Michael Shannon's just a great actor, but not necessarily that recognizable. But you needed that, you know, and Al Fanning had been in in um, 8mm uh, Super 8, mm-hmm. um, and she was amazing, And but again, she's an up-and-coming, but you needed four of them for that to work, and even with them, it didn't really... It didn't help at the box office necessarily. Yeah, it it's also depending upon timing as well, and in terms of uh, its marketability, its campaign, as well, uh, that also can decide and not decide it as well, or yeah, did I mean, it, think, or did it play I a factor? I think the main thing is just that uh, you know the jury's out as to how much actors help with films if the films aren't very good <laughs> but where they do help um, is getting the money to make the films because you know you know you kind of review scripts and then you you see a script which you don't think is necessarily the best script possible but it has a particular role which 
you know, an actor's agent or the actor themselves might think is really good for their career, and and just by them attaching themselves to the film, um, then you've got financiers willing to put up a lot of money, you know, to make the film because yes. they just believe that the name on the poster will bring them their return. Mm-hmm. So. In that vein, then, then what challenges do you find or encounter when taking on uh, projects? It's like, especially with this very hit and miss uh, type markets. Um, well, I mean, I, th- I think always the problem is is um, finding the money, um, mm-hmm. but also finding the material. I mean, it, it's, there's problems all the way along that you have to overcome. I mean. First of all, it's, it's finding material that actors will respond to. I, I always kind of start there. Is I try and find stuff that I that that actors are going to respond to and really going to be, want to be in. Um, the directors, top directors, are going to want because once you get the package, I think it's it's not that hard actually getting the money. Um, if you've got the right package of director and actors, it's, them, it's getting them that's 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 complicated. Um, but when you know when you have harder stories to tell, you know if you have an unsympathetic protagonist, for instance, or you've got a film that's period or it's set or it's some kind of political story, um, if you want to tell those kind of stories, those are harder because they just naturally have less audience for them, no matter who's playing in them, you know, and they really need, you know, so still Alice, for instance. Uh, you know, you really need that star mm-hmm. to to be able to have any audience at all. Um, Almost definitely, yeah. it's like it, it it is that gentle balance. It's like when it is a it is a rougher story Can, uh, or a more controversial topic. At, um, you've been doing this uh, for quite a while, and um, at this point in your career, um, what when the production is you know, when you have something in production, what keeps you up at night most, mostly? Um, well, luckily I only had to deal with it once, but one thing that really, you know, is, is the guilds, um, you know, because we, we don't come from, from the U.S., the first time I had to deal with the guilds on a film was kind of my seventh or eighth film. And, you know, they really... Um, when you're making independent films, you know, often, certainly in South Africa, well, in Europe and most of the world, there's a lot of flexibility around what actors will do and what directors will do and writers in terms of the hours that they work, the fees that they defer, you know, or invest, and all those kind of things. And you kind of, that's something you negotiate all together to make the film. And so when you're confronted with guilds where, you know, you basically may stop a film that you've put, you know, a year of your life into and, and put a lot of stress into because you're not conforming to some of their rules. That's really, you know, that can keep you up at night. But also, we also do deal with large sums of money, so we often, you know, finance our films as well and you put up a large amount of money and then you, you're putting it up against a tax credit or a rebate and you suddenly discover that you know you might have made a mistake um, somewhere in the bureaucratic process. You might have not 
filled in a form properly or um, you didn't submit a form on time or, you know, and yeah, that can really freak you out because, you know, it's, it's kind of, there are many, because films have such large budgets, there are many parts of the chain that can break down and mistakes can be made and everyone makes mistakes. But in this instance, if you make a mistake, you can, you know, bankrupt yourself. So, you know, there's a lot of that going on. And, and during production, you also have the situation where it's not all within your control. You know, sometimes, you know, if the director, for instance, is very powerful, if they have brought some of the money for the film to the table, you may find that you're not able to contain them within the schedule that they've agreed to. And they, because they're going to want to just carry on shooting. And, and you're aware that if they don't meet their schedule, then again, you're going to be in debt and, um, uh, and that's going to cause problems if you and if you don't get the film in the can, you're going to be in worse trouble because you can't deliver the film. So, um, you know, all the way along. I mean, the whole process is about risk mitigation and, and trying to be prepared for. And that's why I suppose experience in filmmaking is invaluable because the more you do it, the more you're aware of the myriad of different things that can go wrong and prepare for them not to go wrong. But so there are quite a few different things that keep you up at night. Mm. Oh, absolutely! It's and can you talk about, for example, like different forms of financing that you also deal with that are uh, and their challenges? Yeah, I mean, um, well, obviously, finding equity is always the most difficult thing. That's you know, people banking on on making a return from the film after because the film value chain is so long and, and so many people take a bite out of the revenue of a film. Um, the people that invest in a film at the very bottom, the equity, have huge risks because um, from $100 at the box office, or just say $10 at the box office, the exhibitor takes 5 or $6. So then they're left with 4 of which the distributor takes some money. Well, first of all, the sales agent no, the distributor, the national distributor takes some of that and then the sales agent will take a proportion of that and then the balance is going, well, some of it will go to pay marketing costs at the distributor level, some will go to pay marketing costs at the sales agent level and then it will come back to equity. So equity is hard to get. In the UK it's a bit easier because there's a tax system which allows investors to kind of write off at least half of their investment if they make a loss. Um, so it's slightly easier to raise here. Um, and then after that, you have kind of the debt um, finance, which is cash flowing, tax credits and rebates, which governments provide, um, whether it be state governments in the US or, or um, national governments in Europe and, and Australia and, and the UK. And that, that is lo relatively low risk because so long as the producer delivers the film and you've got decent accountants, you know, generally you're going to get back from the government, you know, what they say they're going to give you at the beginning. Um, so that's relatively easy to finance. You then have set financing of pre-sales. Uh, when the sales agent has gone out and pre-sold a few different countries, um, so they've sold to distributors in a few different countries and you have to, those people are not going to actually pay until the film is delivered. So you have to finance their contracts. And that's a bit more tricky because in some countries you have very reliable 
um, distributors and also legal systems to ensure that you can get your money back. Um, but even in those countries, like the U.S., for instance, you have people still go bankrupt. So if you happen to be unfortunate enough to have uh, done a pre-sale and financed a pre-sale with a country company that goes bankrupt before you deliver the film, then you know you obviously lose that money. But it gets trickier, you know, in countries where. Mm-hmm. The distributors just don't pay, and, and the legal system is such that you can't really pursue them, um, or you know where they go bankrupt as well. Um, so those are a bit riskier, and therefore more lucrative if you do finance them, but have more risk. Um, and then there's gap finance, which is unprotected investment, um, and it normally kind of fills the last gap, and you, you put in the money at the very last moment. But it's also the money that is recouped first, so it comes back first. And because you get the money first before the other investors, you you only get a premium on that money, so you get your return. But if the film does very well, you don't participate in in the you know the revenues going forward. You take your premium and you walk away. So the equity holders take the most risk and and usually lose generally. But when they when a film does make money, um, King's Speech, or you know, then they have, they'll obviously earn more than the people providing gap finance or tax credit or rebate finance. Also, do uh, a lot of the actors do um, defer, uh, the back end uh, deferral deals now in regards to the UK system because it still is a somewhat uh, shoot of deferring their services. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, m- most times when when you've got really good actors and you can't pay them much, you um, have to offer them some back end um, just to get the deal done. So that's a general convention. Um, they don't generally defer their fees. They, the actors generally take a fee and then take a certain amount of net points um or uh, percentage points of the back end. But directors and writers and producers often defer their fees as well as getting back end. Very, very cool. And also, so, like, as a legal representative in regards to that, it's like, are there certain pitfalls that you advise your clients on, especially, like, do film uh, the filmmakers in these new monetizing systems? Or uh, having their projects out there, it's like, is there something that is a cautionary tale? Well, I mean, as I say, there's so many pieces of the chain from which you can lose money. Um, it's all in the negotiation, and if you if you don't have the power, you don't have the knowledge, for instance, of what. Um, different commission rates are or different percentages that people charge are, you know, you can or or how much people should charge for marketing expenses and whether those expenses are capped or uncapped in the budget. Um, You know, all of these things can lead to situations where films make money, but the producers or the investors don't make any money. You know, anyone involved in the film don't make any money because all of the revenue is absorbed by the people they've contracted with to distribute the film. Um, 
So yeah, I mean there are pitfalls along the way uh, in that in terms of that. Um, I mean filmmaking is all legal. I mean, there's just you know there's fifty or sixty contracts if you include all the production agreements. Um, but so yeah, so in all of those, you you basically need good legal counsel all the way through. Almost oh, definitely. Um, we're a lot. Uh, some people are very familiar, or some of our listeners have been very familiar or getting familiarized with state tax credits and stuff. I was wondering if you could tell us how it differs in the European markets to the North American markets, like the criteria and. Like the co-productions, do they differ in funding models, or is it straightforward? UK, like, is it more straightforward in the UK model? How do they differ? Well, most territories, both national and, and, and province and state, will have a straight spend rebate, where if you spend a certain amount of money, you get a certain amount of money back. Um, on top of that, then you'll have further incentives to actually use the creative personnel of that country. Um, and so often then you either get more grants or subsidies or further increases of rebate and tax rates. So, for instance, in South Africa, if an American film shoots in South Africa as an American film, um, it can only get 20% of what it spends back to itself uh, as a straight rebate. Mm-hmm. Um, if the film is done, however, as a UK South African co-production, then uh, you get thirty-five percent of the first six hundred thousand dollars and twenty-five percent thereafter. So, for a big-budget film, it works out closer to twenty-five percent. Um, yeah, and so it's an extra five percent, basically, what you get. But if you move to some, you know, like Ireland or France or whatever, um, if you make it a an Irish South African co-production and you use an Irish director and some Irish talent, then on top of the the rebate and the, the tax credit in Ireland is 32%, you'd get 25% in South Africa. You then might also get money from the Irish Film Board. Um, they might give you between 500,000 euros and a million euros just because you're using Irish talent. Um, or if you use their post-production facilities, etc. So across the board, there's usually a money-back um, rebate, which is the same as you have in, in various states in the U.S. That's just based on spend, um, and that's a straight accounting thing. But in most territories, there's an additional incentive to use creative personnel from that territory in 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 terms of financial reward by subsidies or grants which go with using directors or actors or crew from from that territory. And also, because uh, I remember in 2007, there was a big uh, crash that happened with the tax incentive systems in the UK and in Europe. It's like, um, I know that it has been restructured since then to provide for that. It's like, is the, uh, it's like, as well as also in South Africa for a while there, there was a little bit of a stress on the model as well. Um, have they tightened up? Pay tax authorities tighten up. Yes. Like yeah. It, I mean, 
Yeah, look, all what happens in all these these, legisla- uh, these jurisdictions is that um, they introduce legislation to assist sometimes the film yes. business, sometimes general enterprises, um, and lawyers and accountants get to work on the legislation mm-hmm. and often find ways to interpret it in a, in a way which maybe the legislature didn't particularly intend, and those windows get opened and then... So in the case of the sale and leaseback system in the UK, um, you know, a lot of films were being made which yes. were not good films. And and so, yes, the tax authorities then, you know, basically come down and, and demolish them in one fell swoop. Um, but then they put something else in place, which they have now, which is more workable, it's applicable to all enterprises, and it it is it's kind of much more restrained. And with these ones, you have to get pre-approval from the Revenue Authority. And a similar kind of thing happened in South Africa as well. Um, so there's always this thing between the industry and its lawyers and accountants and its fund managers and the Revenue Service and the legislature. And I think generally the legislature are always trying to encourage investment in film and create kind of tax advantages and things which revenue hate because it takes away from the tax base. So you, you always just have this kind of thing going round and round. Yeah, yin and yang balance. It's like uh, do, uh, you make money by spend money, but spend money by uh, taking from other monies and then it makes money. And essentially it goes round and round. Yeah, and it depends on, on, you know, you have basically right-wing and left-wing governments, you know, and left-wing governments, uh, your Democrats, and in, in Europe, just that we call left-wing governments, tend to be more open to the arts and um, tend to to want to um, promote culture. And um, so they will tend to open up avenues for public money to, to go to the arts and to film and philanthropy. But then, you know, you, more right-wing governments... Um, for instance, a famous quote from Geert Wilder, who was a right-wing politician in the Netherlands, was, we're no longer going to fund left-wing hobbies. Um, and what he meant by that was the film business. Because yeah. uh, to a lot of right-wing people, the film industry is just a bunch of left-wing people and, and shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be supported um, with, state, with state capital. So, you know, there's that political dynamic going on all the time. Yeah, because they still are, to some people, they do believe that it's whole the, the whole Mickey, Judy, let's put on a show type thing as opposed to an actual art form that took a lot of years of business and long background histories. Yeah, that, you know, that, that film has significant um, impact on, on culture. And, I mean, for instance, the U.S.'s GDP wouldn't be as high as it is and historically for the last 50 years if it wasn't for the film business because the film business projected American way of life and culture onto the rest of the world and made the drive-in hamburger stall and the drive-in cinema and Coca-Cola and, and all the things, car culture, etc. All of these things were exported from the U.S. Uh, to the rest of the world and, and the rest of the world bought those American commodities from America. So, 
and this applies to all territories. You know, films enable the Australian, uh, for Australia from the 60s to now, become much more of a trendy destination because, you know, Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman and Mad Max and all of these things are associated with it. So, you know, we've always tried to show governments that um, there's a lot of return other than just the cultural return, which is in itself um, important because what I always say to African governments is, you know, for instance, Nigeria has a very bad reputation for mm -hmm. people scamming and for this and that, but they make a lot of films, um, but they don't make films that are exported or seen elsewhere. If they invested in their film business and people actually went to the cinema and watched some Nigerian films, got a sense of Nigeria, they would get a sense of a place different from what they have, the sense they have now, um, which is, you know, a very bad sense. Um, and this applies across Africa. Africa's perception, the perception of Africa in the rest of the world would be so much better if Africa actually invested in <clears throat> uh, making films that travel the globe to show people what Africa is actually in terms of people's lives. But unfortunately, you know, apart from South Africa, that hasn't been the case. And in Africa generally, um, the states and the governments don't support filmmakers. Is it just also a fear of that uh, the idea of becoming a global market, or is it, uh, or is it more along the lines of, well, this is just something artsy? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's a number of things. One is that that some of them see film as a, pro a possible kind of uh, propaganda tool, or you know, so there's a lot of censorship in a lot of places, and they don't want to have filmmakers making films that might be critical of them. So first of all, you've got an atmosphere of, in some countries of anti-freedom of expression, but they don't, they don't want the medium to be used against them. Um, then on the other side, you have a lot of people seeing artists as like court jesters, you know, artists mm -hmm. are like clowns, you know, there to, you know, when you have to make a big speech, you trot out, you know, the band and, they play some music and people dance and um, <clears throat> you have some theater, but they, they're not seen as important, rather they're just seen as as, as kind of puffery. Um, <clears throat> and so they see the film business as one in which, you know, you have parties and, you know, it's but it's not a serious business like mining or um, manufacturing. Um, yeah. And so that's, so that's what happens. They, they just don't take it seriously whatsoever, so it doesn't get allocated budget. Normally it gets allocated to the worst of the ministers available. The political talent that's allocated to the ministries that look after the sector are the worst political talent, and so it doesn't get investment. Well, which is understandable, and because also we are becoming that global market with finance and productions, and it is evolving, like the filmmaker process and... Do you feel like we're becoming more global then and being able to cross those boundaries and be able to do that so that we can expand on audience tastes as well as also slowly do the conversion to understanding that it is actually a viable business as well? Um, look, I think the film business um, is 
predominantly unviable. I mean, I think the film business is only viable in the top maybe 5% of the films made um, in the world. I think you've got a large number of films made with state subsidies which have very limited showings outside of their own country. Um, and so they certainly don't have any commercial return and they might have the kind of cultural return that I'm talking about and that I'm not, you know, I don't know, you know, who's done the, the maths on that. Um, <clears throat> um, so I think film will always be like that. It'll be like theater, opera, ballet. You know, it's an art form which, um, which will reach people. And I think film more than opera and ballet and theater has a, has a wider impact. And, um, but I think television as well, now that television has improved so much, um, things like Breaking Bad and The Wire, and, you know, these things have an impact on how people see the world in as much as, um, as some feature films do. Um, so, but I think all countries are now taking film seriously because they, they can see how much money is spent on it. And mm-hmm. I suppose they all do want to have their stories told and bureaucrats always want to, you know, be seen on the red carpet in Cannes. Um, so there's more attention being paid to it. And, and, you know, certainly in South Africa, for instance, the reason we get money from the government is because they see it as a job creator. You know, the film business creates entrepreneurs so the more films are made, you know, the more entrepreneurs are created. Um, but I don't know if film as a business is becoming more viable. I, I would say maybe it's becoming less viable. Because mm-hmm. it's like now it's becoming also a cross-platforming generation. A film can no longer just be a film. It needs to have wings of being able to take into multiple platforms. In regards to that, is Europe catching through, uh, and is South Africa as well catching, th- and other countries catching through on that trend of cross-platforming? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think what's what's happened is that there's 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 so much more competition than there used to be. Um, so in the, in the old days of film, when I suppose when film started in the heydays of the fifties, sixties, and seventies, um, television wasn't very big and cinema was big. Um, but there weren't also, there weren't that many films being made either, comparative to now. So we had a good chance of making money at the cinemas, uh, decent amounts. Um, now there's just thousands of films made every year, and so your chances of making it are slim. If you make it, you've got. You know, it's very difficult to make any money theatrically because it costs so much now to market films. So by the time you've paid for the marketing, that's basically that revenue gone which never used to be the case, you know. Um, so then you've got the revenue from television sales and uh, then DVD, VOD, etc. And mm-hmm. the theatrical will give you your TV sales, which might give you some revenue. Um, DVD is completely dependent on what kind of theatrical release you get. So if you, if you don't get a theatrical release of any good sort, then you're basically not going to get any DVD and you probably won't get any TV sales. And then you've got VOD, which is now, you know, obviously loads and loads more people are watching stuff on VOD, and that is projected to be, you know, the saving grace of the film business. But I don't think it's... I don't think people are seeing yet 
VOD numbers replacing the DVD numbers that that they are replacing. I think as DVD is falling away in terms of revenue, um, VOD is is there and it's growing, but it's growing at a time when there are many other things to distract people. So it's you know the growth of games, the growth of social media uh, means that you know there's much more competition for eyeball space as well than there used to be, not just from other films of which there are thousands, but now of other entertainment, you know, um, avenues. Oh, most definitely. And uh, it's like, it, it's really starting to pop through. And I would say like, so I'm going to ask uh, straightforward, what is places like the AFM and other markets with regards to aspects? Have you found them useful sources towards keeping up with these new trends or uh, being able to make people aware? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I've been to Los Angeles outside of the AFM and then during the AFM, and I've now kind of decided that as a producer, it's more useful for me to go to Los Angeles outside of the AFM because generally during the AFM, um, m most of LA is focused on the sales and agents and distributors that are present during that time and all the meetings. Everyone's very busy, um, the people that I need to see. And so it's actually easier going outside of the AFM when everyone's less busy and you can get meetings with everyone you want to meet with. Um, I think it's different if you're, a, if you're a sales agent or a distributor because it's a very kind of buying and selling market. But if you're doing what we're doing, which is... Um, a, finding projects and other producers that want to work with you or want to shoot films, then it's easier going outside of it. Um, but if I had a project which was being sold at a market by a sales agent, then you know, then AFM would be very useful because that's when you'd be meeting all the distributors and it would be, it would be great. Um, or if, if you've got a film that you're selling as well. Um, but it's the same, yeah. So AFM is in line with the Cannes Film Festival and Market um, and the Berlin Film Festival market to a certain extent, and Toronto. Most, uh, yeah, it's like uh, they are uh, coming out as the four big emerging markets in regards to that. It's like four finished products. Yeah. Kente? Um, yeah, um, I want to kind of go back to uh, different ways that you can get revenue. Uh, one way is uh, through like Redbox. Um, is that is that still relevant um, in the industry, or is that uh, going away? Because it's it's kind of um, hard to tell if that's you know. Because I've talked to some independent filmmakers who some say great things, some don't. So um, I I don't know what Redbox is, but it is it like a uh, oh, it's like yep. a, uh, it's like these boxes that are all over, all over where you can actually um, rent DVDs for like two dollars. Oh, okay. And um, I'll, you know, um, you can get just about uh, all, all kind of movies and stuff. And I've I've heard some independent filmmakers uh, mm -hmm. say they love it and it's been good for them. And I, you know, I've heard some they say they don't like. So I was wondering, um, did you have any thoughts on I'm that? I think, I mean, I think if you, if you're looking for, kind of a wider range of films, I think, the, Love Film and, maybe Redbox is the same may carry a much, larger catalogue, and I'm finding just in the UK if I look at, 
my television and I look at Netflix, Virgin Media, and Sky, which are the main VOD things I can look at, there's huge numbers of films that are missing, you know, historically, films that you can't find. So you, there's a lot of films there, but they're not extensive. I presume, and I haven't really looked at it yet, but I presume that Amazon Prime um, is going to have a much larger range. Um, and But there's some films like Crash, for instance, which I'm always, it's one of my favorite films, and I, I'm always looking for it. And I don't find it on any of the platforms. Um, and so they're possibly DVD outlets that, that carry those more. Um, which does make sense because it's like it, yeah DVD is also still very uh, popular here in some ways with Redbox as well um, actually they've removed a lot of Redboxes in Canada which is very strange uh, in regards to that they've all but pulled out in lieu of places like Amazon Prime, Netflix com uh, like a more internet streaming version of it yeah I mean I think ultimately look I mean you know, it's just the way things are going. It's it's even Love Film. They made it really simple for you to return a DVD. You know, they, you could have a enclosed a thing that you had, you could post and all that. But it still meant you still had to do that. You know, you had to still go to a post office and post something. Or, and I suppose Redbox, you still had to go to the Redbox, which is always just a, a you know something. Whereas VOD, it's easier just to kind of like download it on your television or on your screen and. So I think any anything that's based on DVDs will have its time, you know, will be phased out, you know, within the next five years, I'm sure. Within the next five years, there won't be any more DVD carrying, um, you know, in the same way as VHS. So uh, I understand also, though, with regards to that. So then how would you say then that uh, with uh, that, that the main differences in taste then between how the European market and international markets and uh, the uh, South African markets, like any uh, outside of the North American markets, how do they differ in tastes and also ways that they pre prefer to consume the product? And do you feel like that they have a more broadened perspective of filmmaking in general and how they like to consume product or is it more like a more traditional how uh, how does it differ like why does it differ um essentially more sophisticated markets which have had exposure to cinema for longer um tend to have a more like diverse taste so the european market is uh open much more to subtitled films and more auteur driven maybe less commercial films in general and the French market in particular um, prides itself on very auteur driven <coughs> cinema and very nationalistic so they have the highest amount of French of, of national films that play on their box office they have like 40% um, of the box office is, is French films whereas most other countries um, will have anything from 70 to 95 percent of their box office being American films um, and then within that again you know European audiences will probably watch 
more readily American independent films, um, whereas the South African marketplace um, and the Chinese marketplace, which are very similar, much younger um, in terms of you know cinema culture, are I would say quite juvenile and unsophisticated in that the primary market is American blockbusters, tent poles, franchises, animated films, family family action, and you know a film like Lincoln or um, uh, Tarantino's films or Motorbar films, auto-driven films, make very little money there at all. And it seems from my discussions with Chinese uh, that their audience is the same. You know, they even for Chinese films they want to see, you know, rom-coms, comedies, and and an action. You know, that's kind of their thing. And then and then American franchises. So yeah, so that's the difference. Um, you, you're your kind of thinking person's film is going to work in Europe, um, but may not work elsewhere in the world. Um, let me let me ask you this question. So off topic, but uh, you know you're a very busy man. You 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 do quite a bit uh, of work internationally. Um, do you ever get a chance to just have some fun? Do you? Uh, what do you do for fun to unwind when you're not uh, closing big deals and you know and bringing all these things together? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm mean, at the stage of life where I suppose it's quite boring. I mean, when I'm taking a night off, I often want to just watch a movie. I suppose having dinner, going traveling is a big thing. Um, finding new places. Um, but I now have uh, children, and so I like just spending time with them, hanging out with them. Um, and I suppose getting outdoors. I mean, I, you know, I'm going for a run just now. I, I enjoy getting out. If I had more, you know, leisure time, it would be to go on hikes and kind of go up mountains and stuff. I enjoy that, but I don't have any time to do it. Um, yeah. Do you, Do you ever when you go someplace? Go, you know, we should really shoot here for something. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, we always you always kind of looking at locations, and <clears throat> it also happens when you when you hear somebody say or something, or somebody tells a story, and you know, you're always kind of like in that mode of like, wow, that that's a scene, you know, like that's a scene that you can write for a film. Um, but yeah, you often look at locations like, I wonder what the hotels cost here, and you know, where can we put the crew in? Yeah. Very cool. And just uh, on that uh, also subject, because I noticed that uh, for a while there that you also have worked for for-profit and not-for-profit uh, sectors as well. Um, how do the uh, how do the the different production and like the end product in regards to that? Because I know that you also have done documentaries and out, things outside the actual traditional film as well. Yeah, so, I mean, in the not-for-profit sector, you know, most of what I did in Africa was in the not-for-profit sector where I acted as, like, an advertising agency for <clears throat> for non-government organizations that had specific campaigns. So whether it be campaigns against child labor, uh, reproductive health campaigns to stop the spread of HIV, um, um, uh, domestic violence campaigns, we used to devise campaigns 
that were multimedia. So sometimes we used street theater, community theater. Sometimes we had radio talk shows or, or radio soap operas. Sometimes television commercials, bus shelters, newspaper, print media, etc. And, and often, you know, we would be doing the radio shows and the TV uh, commercials and running the theater program and doing all this together. Um, and in a way, I would say that the not-for-profit sector then is not much different from what I'm doing for profit now because I haven't made any profits. <laughs> You know, despite running a, a profit-making, you know, company, it's really hard to make a profit in film. So you, you know, you tend to make enough money to survive, and so that's not unlike working in the not-for-profit sector, where, you know, you get a you get a salary, you get a fee to do certain things. Um, it's not. It's a. It's a one negative thing about. I, I don't like about film is that, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur, and I've, I've had a lot of businesses, other businesses, which make money, and I wish that I could be making money at this business because, um, because it would just it would feel better to be in a business which, which generates a return. But at the same time, I know that, that I'm on this kind of journey to getting to the point where there are obviously companies in the film business that do make money. And I suppose we're kind of still on that, that journey to get there. Um, but... No, I wouldn't say that it's, it's very much different working between the two. The, I suppose the only difference in the not-for-profit sector is that, you know, it's not that hard to finance things. You know, you write a proposal, you send it off to people with money, foundations and donors, or if they accept your proposal, they basically give you all the money, you know, um, and you do the work and, and you write a report and you give them back their stuff. Whereas, you know, the film business, it's a lot more complicated in terms of raising the money. Um, it takes much longer. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, it's like in terms of working with startups, I notice that you also work a lot with uh, startups. So, like, what opportunities then become available to those emerging companies? Um, well, I mean, you know, that's kind of in the past and and there's some stuff I'm doing now, but in, um, in Southern Africa at one point, I was involved with the Southern African Media Development Fund where we had a, a fund available to um, radio stations and, and television production companies where we provided loans at very low interest rates to them, uh, but they had to submit to our management um, consulting. So we would, instead of... Um, risk mitigating in other ways we would risk mitigate by getting involved in the business to make sure that the business was was running well and could repay its loan um, so I've been involved in doing that now I'm kind of more involved in in I suppose helping um, the directors that I'm working with to kind of set up their own businesses um, that's I suppose what I'm doing now mm-hmm and also, it's like, uh, with regards to film, because you were talking about it itself, um, what are some of the elements you actually look for from the filmmaker, and do you prefer, like, the collaborative process or complete uh, or complete generation from your side of the entity? Um, 
I have most of the business that we've done so far is people coming to us with packaged projects which we find finance for and locations and and implement um, or try and find cast and director but I am now moving towards a position where you know I'm, I'm writing things myself and and finding that often I feel like my ideas um, are stronger than a lot of the ideas that I see or scripts coming across and so I'm beginning to try and develop my own things um, which you know, it, the collaborative process is great, but at the end of the day, you it is a collaborative process, and so you have to buy into the shared product of your shared positions, and you don't necessarily agree with all of them. Um, and even with my own things, probably that'll be the case as well. Um, but yeah, it's nice when you when you find somebody that you completely click with, and you're you can get past ego, and and you can genuinely argue the case for either of your ideas and come up with something which is which is amazing um, yeah, but that always doesn't always happen true it's like it is it's a matter of personalities and working with various personalities yeah and uh, it's like so that is your next chapter is you're hoping to actually get some of the things that you've written as well as how, uh, what is the next thing that you would love to be involved with um yeah I mean basically I'm taking initially the first two projects I'm doing I've written treatments um which I've now got writers and I get to the point where the treatments are ready to be written into scripts I'm happy with them, and then you know writers are going to kind of join the dots and fill in the gaps, um, and then I've got to. After that, I'm going to. There's another project which I want to actually start. I've written the treatment. I want to write myself, and I want to move into a position where I am a producer writer, and um, because I'd like to be able to produce some of the things that I've written myself. Um, because it means I'm not always waiting for, you know, other material to come from somewhere else, but I'm using the knowledge I have of the marketplace and of actors and directors and what they want to direct or act in and applying that to stories that I'm telling um, mm -hmm. and maybe kind of getting to the end goal quicker. Yeah, and also I was wondering as well, um, can you talk, uh, are you thinking then also in terms of a co-production process in terms of that? Because I've often wondered, it's like with regards to the co-production process, like with multiple countries involved sometimes, it's like how is the jurisdictions handled? Um, uh, in co-productions, essentially each country, each producer in each country has to apply to their national funding body or their national government for it <clears throat> for co-production to be certified as such and that's all governed by treaties between countries so for instance the US doesn't have a treaty with anyone because it doesn't need to be involved in official co-productions and it doesn't get involved in official co-productions um, it can co-produce but, but it doesn't really get involved in that system um, but, but Canada, Australia, South Africa, Europe, um, <clears throat> these countries have treaties between them 
which govern the co-production process. And whenever you apply to do co-production, the producer in each country applies to their national body for a certificate certifying the film as a as a co-production and therefore mm-hmm. giving the film the benefits um, of finance in each country, which are normally given only to national films. And how does this affect then the system with it in regards to uh, the jurisdictions? Because you're working, if you're an official co-production, you're working within that country's jurisdiction. If you're not an official co-production, how does that differ then in terms of the process? Because it's like working through various countries. So if if you're not an official co-production, for instance, if you're a U.S. film, coming to co-produce a film in South Africa. If you're not an official co-production, you'll get less money from the South African government um, or the UK government or the French government, whoever you're shooting in. Um, And you'll also have less requirement to use their personnel. Um, So if you can afford not to use their personnel and you don't want to use their personnel, um, then that's the way you go. But if you need the money from the other country then you apply to be an official co-production to get that money, but along with that money will come requirements that you use their their personnel in either directing, writing, DOP, crew, you know, any any of those elements. So that's how it differs. I mean, when you have official co-productions, you have to use the creative personnel from each of the countries in a, a manner that's proportionate to the amount of money you're getting from each country. So if Canada puts in 40% and the UK puts in 60, then 40% of the creative personnel must come from Canada and 60% must come from the UK. And then you can access the grants available to UK filmmakers and Canadian filmmakers. Um, if you if you do it as an unofficial co-production, then you know you can't get all of the money that's available from those national governments, but by the same token, you don't have to have any... You don't have to use Canadians or UK people specifically. Okay, so it, it's like it, then it works in a pros and cons uh, type system then. Because I, uh, it's like I've often said that if you are going to do a co-production, then you must do, uh, then you must uh, often use at least some of the talent that's there because well, then why are you shooting there? Yeah, I mean, you know, know, some people just want the location, you know. Some people, I mean, it's particularly an American phenomenon, but it's not generalized to Americans. Australians also a bit like this. In fact, most of the advanced filmmaking nations are like this. They kind of just presume that that there's no talent where they're going and and that the most talented people are from where they are, um, or at least those are the ones they know. Uh, but they need their, the mountains or the desert or the sea or whatever it is for their film. So generally they want to come with everybody um, until you tell them, oh, actually, you know, we've got some talented production designers, DOPs. You just let them meet the people and see their work, and then some of them then, you know, agree, and, and then they allow, you know, then they, they use local talent um, more. So, you know, and then... Normally what happens is, is the more they get to know a particular country and know that that country has talented people, then the less they bring over their own people. It's, which is understandable. 
Now, also, uh, just asking also, is there any advice that you'd impart to an emerging, to our emerging filmmakers or to people who are considering shooting in South Africa, Europe, as well as also outside the North American markets? Yeah, I mean, I think if, you, if you're looking to shoot outside of the U.S., um, then the first thing is to start as early as possible and finding where you want to shoot, um, what money you can get from those different countries and what requirements they have to access that money. And that's before you start um, attaching directors and actors and all that kind of stuff because um, you may find that if you haven't yet appointed a director or actors, um, you may be able to shoot a film in Ireland or the UK or something with an Irish director and actor which will bring more money than you'll be able to, to raise in the US for instance um, <clears throat> so but if you're already locked into a director um, and actors then you know you won't be able to access so much money where you're going and you know that's just something you have to consider so it's worthwhile as early on in the process as possible if your film can be shot elsewhere um, to find out where it can be shot and find out what incentives, financial incentives they are to shoot there and what requirements, creative requirements, and then see if you, you know, if, if the project can can sustain those creative requirements. And if they can, then, you know, you're going to save money or you're going to get a lot more grant funding. Which me, uh, which does absolutely make a lot of sense in regards to that. It's like, uh, so understanding that also culture as well as also the process. Yeah. <clears throat> and I mean, sometimes it swings around about, I mean, you know, we have a $2.2 million thing that we are, we've inherited from somebody that was trying to do the film in Utah and they can't make it work in Utah and they're saying, can you make it in South Africa? And, you know, in some areas it's cheaper in South Africa. The rand, uh, the local currency is devalued by quite a lot. Um, but, by the same token, there were a lot of actors and producer, director, and things that wouldn't have had to travel very far to get to Utah. So, the, so it wasn't going to cost them very much to fly them. Whereas to fly them to South Africa was going to cost them a lot, much, a lot more. And so you you do have to weigh that up and um, the cost of of flying people and accommodating them versus doing them at home. Mm-hmm. Wow, that, so much goes into the process. The parts that people don't really understand. I guess people don't really care. They just want to see their movies and their TV shows or whatnot. And then they'll leave it to people like yourself to uh, to worry about that kind of stuff, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, no one who walks into a cinema knows whether the film was made for $2 million or ten. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, you know, they're just concerned with their what they're getting out of it and and in the end that is what it's about you know because you you know just because the budget's high doesn't necessarily mean it's it's going to be good um so yeah yeah well we like to thank you so much for joining us today i mean it, it's been a great insight into what you do and you know for the young uh filmmakers out there or people who want to get in on 
on the financial side or whatnot. Um, do you have any um, in, any uh, advice for someone just breaking into the business? Um, uh, unless you want to um, live a life where you have to defer normal things that people have like um, mortgages, houses, marriage, children, um, it's better to do something that's more um, more secure. Uh, yeah, I mean, generally, I, I, I say to people, look, I mean, for me, I, I look at it and say, okay, I came from a small town in the middle of Africa, and I, I'm making films in London, so to a certain extent, I'm kind of living the dream, but, but I do think that there are, um, depends what you want from life. I think if you if you do want to have marriage and kids and a regular life and a regular salary and job, and then the film business is not for you, and you probably should should not pursue it. Um, if you're willing to make all those compromises and and live just to make films and and live with the fact that your life is not going to be normal, then you know pursue it and and you just have to do everything you can to meet uh, the business is a lot about knowing people. Um, so you have to expose yourself, get to the places where films are made, where the film business is, um, and then have something unique to offer, you know, whether it be writing or directing, um, and take every opportunity you can. And, you know, for young people, that's always just do short films, be crew, be a runner, um, because there's so many people that are big agents now who are just producers assistants you know a few years ago and then they move from being agents to being producers and um, so it's just going and, and being so completely passionate and hard-working that you rise above what is an incredibly competitive uh, field of people trying to get into the into the business um, but be completely realistic uh, you know about when to jump off the train if you're not actually getting there because you can spend a long time chasing this dream without without making it. Yes. Well, once again, thank you. And how can people reach you uh, either social media or your website or whatnot to find out what your next projects are and such? Um, on Facebook, we have a Facebook page which is Spear Films, S-P-I-E-R Films. And we have a website which is www.spearfilms.com. Um, and we also have Facebook pages for each of the films that we've made. Um, and, I mean, I have my own mm -hmm. Facebook page and I have a LinkedIn page um, in my name. So those are the different, different ways. Mm -hmm. I also have a Twitter page as well. Which is Michael J H Orit. Right. What about you, Grayson? How can people get you? Well, you can get me on Facebook, on LinkedIn, as well as also, goodness, on Bizipedia, um, quite a few places actually. But best ones also via the uh, the website www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net as well as also on iHeartRadio as uh, we know as well as also on the indie uh, indieradio.org page as well 
Yes, and make sure you like us on on Facebook, and uh, you can you can follow me at Kente F, and uh, programming note tonight at six p.m. Pacific, nine Eastern, uh, we'll be joined by actor C Ma, who's uh, uh, currently on the show uh, Hell on Wheels. So you definitely guys want to check that out. That's at six p.m. Pacific, nine Eastern. And, of course, we'll be back uh, next Monday, right, with an all-new episode of Movie Time? Absolutely. All right. And we'll catch you next time right here on IndieRadio.org.